Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it as always. This week I'm interviewing Neil Ross. Now, Neil, he is... I would say a legendary voiceover actor. Now, the reason why I interviewed him, you know, two reasons. He has a book um, that just came out talking about his his life and experience in, in voiceover work, um, but also just because, you know, we, we've talked to a lot of people in these past few weeks that just do, um, you know, jobs and have hobbies that I just don't think a lot of us know a ton about. I think that's uh, true with with voiceover work too. You know what is voiceover work? Um, you know what is it to to make your career in you know characters and and creating voices and 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 all these things. So Neil, just an amazing guy. Uh, I learned just a ton. You know about you know the entertainment industry. He started in radio and was. Uh, there for 20 years, you know, what, what made him want to get into voiceover work? What made him to get into, you know, radio and, and entertainment to begin with? Um, just a, a really, really cool guy. Um, you know, we, we learned a lot about his story from, you know, from the early days to, to what he's doing now. Um, you know, he, he is the, um, the announcer for a game show. Um, he has announced the Emmy Awards. Um, he's announced the Academy Awards. Um, he's, you know, your some of your favorite, uh, maybe your animated cartoons. He's the voice in a lot of those too. Just a, a really cool guy who gives a lot of uh, really fun stories and then a lot of really good insight uh, for people who are interested in, uh, you know, the entertainment world, uh, especially in, in the voiceover area. He's going to give you some tips there. Um, I think it's sound advice and one that uh, I think that people have heard um, before. I'm not going to give that away. You're going to hear it. Um, but uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Neil Ross. I am here today with Neil Ross. Neil, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Jackson. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. Thanks for agreeing to join me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I enjoy doing this kind of stuff because it allows me to discuss my favorite topic, which is me. <laughs> well, let's let's just jump right into it. I know I, I looked at your book. I, I read a good chunk of it. And I know that growing up, we're going to start kind of the beginning. Growing up, you you were you, you were in kind of, kind of quite a few places. You started out in England, then in Canada, then you came to America. So tell us just a little bit about, uh, I guess, growing up in your childhood. Yeah, well, I was born in, in England, and uh, but we left when I was two, so I have no conscious memory of England at all. Mm -hmm. And we ended up in uh, Montreal, Canada, where I spent my formative years. And uh, then at a certain point, my father decided uh, we would go to California in the United States. And uh, man, that was a <laughs> that was a hell of a segue. But uh, I gave up uh, skating and skiing, but I got to live uh, right across the street from the beach. So, and actually see palm trees out in the wild growing unsupervised, you know. In Montreal, you want to see a palm tree, you got to go to a, an arboretum or something. Yeah. Uh, here they were just, you know, growing in the street. Well, not oh, in the street, a... but, you know, adjacent to the street. Right. Yeah, that's the same way with me. I live in Indiana, so we, we don't have palm trees. And the first time I went out west and, and saw a palm tree and it was just like in the, you know, front of the McDonald's, I thought, dang, that's crazy that there's a palm tree right there. And then I realized there's palm trees everywhere. That's just yeah. like a oak tree here. <laughs> yeah, I used to just stand and stare at them, you know. <laughs> uh, now I'm afraid it's all, you know, I take it for granted now, but... Uh... Anyway, the book you were kind enough to allude to is my book, Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers, and the subtitle pretty much sums it all up. Yeah, voiceover as a, as a whole. I know that you said that you, you started with voiceover reading the Sunday comics with a great big voice recorder. So yeah, let's just kind of talk about what yeah. started your passion with, with uh, voiceover work and, and things like that. Well, we had no television set for a long time. 
And uh, so it was pretty much the radio and this little record player that I had with a little tiny collection of records. And I began to listen to the radio and I had no interest in music at that point. It all bored me. Uh, but I would uh, tune around listening to people speak. And even if I couldn't understand the topic they were discussing, I just loved to focus on the voices. And, and suddenly, spontaneously, I began to try to reproduce what I was hearing. And it was with no thought of, ah, this will be my life's work. It was just a fun thing to do, you know. Uh, some kids build model airplanes, and I sat in my room and did voices. <laughs> and my father thought he had a mental case on his hands. <laughs> and then what you were mentioning is this one wonderful day when my father brought a tape recorder home from work. I cannot describe to younger people who have access to all sorts of recording equipment now what it was like in those days. There were no home tape recorders. They were hideously expensive. They were huge. Uh, you know, a business might buy one, but nobody had one in their home. And he brought this thing from work. It was in a giant suitcase. Well, it looked giant to me. I was, I don't know, seven years old. And I, I thought the idea of being able to record myself and hear it played back was just because you do you're you're trying to do things, but you can't really evaluate them because you can't hear a playback. I remember in Keith Richards' book, he talked about early on in the, in the Stones' history when some corrupt recording engineers said, oh, I'll get you in at two in the morning, but you only have an hour. And they put their stuff and they recorded and then they listened because they could never really hear what they sounded like while they were doing it. And here he, he said, I cannot describe to you what, it, and I can't either, that this wonderful opportunity. And fortunately, my father who was not usually the nicest guy, but he did actually let me record something on, on the recorder and play it back. And what I did was the Sunday funnies from the Montreal star. And I played all the parts and I listened to it back, not on an ego trip, but it's like, Oh, that's exactly what I, it, it sounds like what I thought I was accomplishing and hearing that playback. That was a very dramatic moment in my young life. So for, for people who don't know, I think that most people would, but what exactly is, you know, we're going to talk a little about voiceover acting and, and things like that. What exactly is voiceover work? That's in, an interesting question and not many ask it. Actually, the phrase, the, the, the term voiceover comes from what you will see in a movie or television script and what it, the, the full uh, phrase is voice over picture. Mm. It's any voice that you hear that doesn't have a character attached to it that you can see on the screen. Uh, it could be the character's thoughts. I walked down that dark alley and I thought this and that. Could be a radio that somebody turns on or a voice coming out of a television, any, anything like that. But of course, you're also talking about commercials television and radio and radio is interesting somebody pointed out to me technically even though we do a ton of radio commercials us voiceover people radio technically isn't voiceover because there ain't no picture hmm. you know but it's still part of the business and you narrate uh, documentaries you provide voices for movies and television shows there's television and radio commercials what am i leaving out well, of course, animation. Of course, that's mm. what I'm leaving mm. out. It's this whole range of acting where nobody sees you. They just hear you. You have to do it all with your voice. Okay. And that's basically voiceovers. And for a long time, I never knew this business even existed. As I mentioned, I spent 20 years, well, I mentioned before we started this thing that I was on the radio for 20 years. Mm. And uh, I was only after I'd been in the business, I don't know, 10 or 15 years that I suddenly started, I, I one day found out, my God, this business exists called voiceovers. And I realized that's the perfect job for me because I was beginning to get soured with radio. And I thought, boy, if there was any business where I could use close to 100% of what I got to offer, it's this voiceover thing. I have to do this. And luckily, I was able to make that happen. Yeah. So tell us, you know, that, that was one of my, my next questions about your radio career. Tell us just a little bit about that career. And then you said that you kind of got soured on it. So, yeah. so what is it about radio that maybe was, was less appealing towards the end? 
Well, I think it was a combination of me changing and the business changing. Um, more and more, they tamped down on the uh, uh, the DJ's creativity. Um, it's hard to describe. I was just thinking about something this morning that happened to an old friend of mine. We started out together in the business, and then he went into some other line of work for about 20 years. And then he got back in the business, and by this time I was out, and he, he was having a ball. Oh, I forgot how much fun this is. I can't imagine why you don't do radio anymore. You were so great. Oh, I'm having a ball. What, what? I said, well, you didn't spend the last 20 years listening to these idiots that run these radio stations. Uh, you're having fun now. You know, check back in a year or two. Well... A year or two later, he called me and he said, he told me this story. This program director dragged him in. He liked to do the weather and he would say, you know, and under partly cloudy skies, it's 75 degrees, you know. And this guy calls him and he says, you know, the sky is actually an illusion. We're a planet uh, in space. And uh, what we think is the sky is actually the sun reflecting off the atmosphere. There is no sky. So stop saying sky. My, my friend said there are at least six major things wrong with this radio station, but this idiot has time to call me in and tell me to stop saying the word sky. Uh, and and this, <laughs> this kind of nonsense is what over time just drip, 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 drip until you suddenly realize, God, I used to look forward to coming in and doing this, and now I'm starting to dread it. It's like an actual job. Hmm. And of course, I never wanted to have an actual job. You know, that was right. that was part of my master plan. I, seriously, I, I it was so great to have a job you looked forward to doing. Most people don't, and yeah. suddenly I didn't I didn't enjoy it anymore as much. And then I discovered, my God, there's this voiceover business. Mm -hmm. I've I've got to get out of radio and get into voiceovers. And that's yeah. what, that's what I, it was a long process, but it happened. Yeah. And you talked about too, just having a, a mentor, your mentor, I believe was named Otto Miller. Yes. Uh, yes. Was now, was this after you were in radio and then met Otto or was this, you know, growing up? I, I kind of, no, 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 no. I was, uh, you know, one night, we can talk about the, what actually happened, but in a nutshell, one night I got hit with a bolt of lightning because I had no idea what I was going to do with myself in life. And I'm, I think, a junior in high school at this point. And suddenly it occurred to me, maybe I could be a disc jockey. Hmm. And in those days, it was insanely difficult to find anything out about the business. It was a whole different world. No internet, no trade. Well, there were trade magazines, but I didn't even know they existed. I, and I'm trying to find out something about the radio business. And I was delivering newspapers at the time. And a fellow newspaper deliverer mentioned that one of his customers was a, a radio guy. And I wangled an invitation. And uh, this guy was very kind, very generous. His name was Otto Miller. He was... Um, a big heavy set guy with one of those deep baritone voices. And he actually did the news on the station my father listened to, which played syrupy, uh, sappy music. And uh, But Otto did the news. And then at night he hosted a classical music program. So he wasn't, you know, I wanted to meet a swigged top 40 DJ. But, uh, you know, Otto was the only guy I had access to. So I pestered him with questions and he was... As I look back, he was very patient and very kind and very generous and actually took me down to the station. That was the first time I ever got my hands on professional equipment. He let me fiddle around in the production studio for a while. I cannot describe what that was like. It was just like I've died and gone to heaven, you know. So, yeah. yes, that that was my probably my earliest and best mentor, Otto Miller. He's long gone now, but I'm very grateful to him. So do you think it's important to have your know, mentor to, to get you kind of into the business? Is it something that you can, you can, I guess, get into on your own? Or is that, was that a really vital part of, of the process? Well, you know, there are, are many, many paths to, uh, to success. If, if somebody you know, an older, wiser, more experienced person shows an interest in you. God, that's such a gift. Mm -hmm. But you don't always get that. 
sometimes you got to just sort of mentor yourself. And yeah. uh, so if you're lucky enough to find one, um, treat them right. Absolutely. And, and appreciate Absolutely. what you have because not everybody gets that. Right. No, for sure. So one question I'd have too about the, the radio business is why do you think it, it was your case too? It lends itself so well to other, um, I guess, careers in entertainment. You know, I'm yeah. speaking, I'm speaking with you and, and with voiceover, which seems kind of like a, a little bit of a natural progression. But, you know, a few weeks ago, I spoke with Bob Eubanks, who was in, was in radio for 15 years. And then he went on and do the, the sure. newlywed game. So I just wonder what, what do you think it is about radio that gives you the skills to move into to something else in entertainment? Well, I would just, you know, not, I mean, some people spend their whole lives in the business. Some people do extraordinarily well in the business. But for many people, I would describe it as an entry-level show business job. You get exposed to a lot of different things. And, you know, if you if you keep your eyes open and your wits about you and you, you get into your sort of 30s and things aren't going that great, sometimes you go, oh, but if I went, you know, if I became a record, I seem to think I could maybe be a record promoter. I could get in the record business or move up into management or move into sales. or It's just a sort of a great entry level show business job. And as I said, some people do it their entire lives, but... Um, you know, there the, there were so many radio stations and they needed certain number of people. You could get in the business if you were willing to go to the Fargo, North Dakotas and, and you know, places that, no offense, Fargo, but are perhaps less than desirable, especially in the middle of the winter. And uh, so did you yeah. did you go into did, when you were in radio? Where were some of the places you you were? Well, I luckily <clears throat> escaped uh, what uh, the late, great uh, uh, Tom Big Daddy Donahue, the father of underground uh, West Coast FM, once described as electronic Siberia, <laughs> which he said, those are the first few jobs you'll get are somewhere in electronic Siberia. I didn't spend very much time in electronic Siberia. The first out, absolute first job I had was at a little tiny station in Arizona, and it only lasted two weeks, thank God, and I got out of there. And then I went to Salt Lake City, which was a you know fairly good-sized town. And at a certain point, I had to go to a place called Lewiston, Idaho, which I was not real happy about, and uh, I was not there very long. But other than that, it, it, was, it was gravy, man. I was in uh, Honolulu and... <laughs> San Diego, San Francisco, and then down to Los Angeles, the, the great uh, Pacific Circle route, if you will. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So so most of your career, well, maybe not most, you said you spent 20 years in radio, but but a good second chunk of your career was in, in voiceover. So I mm -hmm. want to make sure that we talk about that. Um, so what we, we talked about you leaving radio and, and realizing voiceover was a, a good uh, thing for you to pursue, but how exactly did that that process happen? Yeah, I didn't actually leave radio and go into voiceovers. It was a little more complicated than that. At the time, the only two cities where there was any kind of meaningful voiceover going on were Los Angeles and New York, and I opted for Los Angeles primarily because that's where all the animation work was, and I thought, I think that's going to be one of my strong suits, and it turned out that was correct. But of course, you know, L.A. is an expensive city. You have to somehow pay the rent. And so my master plan was to get a radio job in Los Angeles and then uh, try to get into voiceovers on the side. And that's essentially what I did. And the transition, once I hit L.A., the transition period lasted about four years. At the end of four years, the tail was wagging the dog. I was making much more money outside the building than inside the building. But I had finally achieved a position at one of the legendary Los Angeles radio stations, and I was loath to give that up. But eventually I did because it just interfered with uh, what I was trying to do on the outside. And uh, so, But there, there was about a four-year period where I was working both voiceovers and radio. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the, I guess, some of the work, the voiceover work that, that you did early in, in, in that process? And then also some of the, the things that people may know about now. 
Well, early in the process, it was uh, whatever you could get. Um, I had a little bit of early success with uh, narrations. I, for some reason, well, I, I know what had happened. At radio stations, you do what, what are called rip and read newscasts. You're doing news on your own show. So you roll a record, run down the hall to the UPI wire machine. Nobody will even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's where you, in those days, it's long roll of paper that regurgitated news. You'd rip off a five-minute newscast. You'd scan it real quick just to make sure there weren't garbles. And then, boom, it's news time. News, news, news. And uh, I'm reading the news cold. I haven't looked at it. I, the news is as big a shock to me as it is to the audience. <laughs> but I created this very authoritative delivery, which sounded as though I've written this, researched it. Uh, I know this uh, story intimately. I've covered it for years. And now <laughs> I'm telling you. And uh, I found that read, that attitude, very helpful in narrations. And so I clicked with uh, a a guy who produced uh, these little shows that they would give, they would show to salespersons. It would be pumping them up to go out. You know, you're, you're recording something that may only be seen and heard by a half a dozen people, but you know, it, it's, it's work. It paid a little money and I was sort of getting my toe in the business. You would do that kind of uh, stuff. And then I started to have a wee bit of success in animation, um, mostly being called into play incidental roles. Uh, I would not be a regular cast member, but they would call me in. I, I, the first, I, I vividly remember the first time I worked for Hanna-Barbera, and they were sort of the MGM of animation. You know, there was, they had a whole studio. They had a, a lot, you know, and, I, and a gate with a guard. And I remember driving up and saying my name, and my God, the gate flew up, and they let me in, and I did a, an episode of Richie Rich. Huh. And I got to watch the big kids work. And in my memory, they're all there. And I'm sure they weren't. But I'm, I know Joni Gerber was there and Lenny Weinrib and I think Michael Bell. And uh, to me, these were like uh, the Clark Gable and Vivian Lee of voiceovers. Just to be in the same room with them was a thrill. And, and to watch how they worked and how they dealt, you know, how they worked with the director, Gordon Hunt, who I would work for many, many, many times after that, a lovely man very actor friendly. And it was, uh, you know, there, there was a little bit of that. And then this wonderful breakthrough year when I landed regular roles in two network cartoon shows, and I had a couple of national television commercials airing. And uh, uh, that was the year when I thought, you know, I think I can legitimately say I'm in the business. And that would have been, I think, 83. A long time ago. So, I mean, has it, you, you know, you're talking about some of these national commercials and then some of the, the cartoons or animation or, or, or whatever it is that you call it. Has, has it happened where you've heard yourself not expecting to hear yourself? So not like listening back, but, you know, hearing the commercial or something. And how is that experience itself? Well, of course, I was used to hearing my voice because I've recorded a million commercials on yeah. radio stations and heard those. You know, I think I'm forced to the conclusion that I'm I'm my own worst critic. Mm. You try to, you think, well, you've heard your own voice a million times. You've got to be objective at this point. But I, something happened to me once. I couldn't believe it. I came in to work for a woman that I used to work with a lot. And for some reason, she hadn't hired me in a year or two. And here I was. And she said, I thought she said, I'm going to play you this commercial and I want you to match what this guy did. So she throws it in the machine, hits play. This guy comes on and I'm thinking, he's wonderful. I can't match this. God almighty, I'm in, I'm in trouble. He's, he's so great. And then something clicked in my brain and I realized, oh, that's me. <laughs> and the minute I knew it was me, I didn't like it anymore. Mm. I was like, oh, that's not good. What she had said was, this is something you did for me two years ago. I want you to match it. I had misunderstood her. And I realized you're not objective about your own voice. You, you, you're just not. So you, you just do the best that you can and, and, and hope for the best. 
No, I, I, I agree with that. That's, I mean, just in this podcast, I listen to them back every time and I think, man, that was a, that was a silly question or why did I phrase it that way? But then other people say, no, I thought that was good. So yeah, it's, it's all about just everyone. Well, not everyone, but I think a lot of people are, are critical of themselves and hopefully that's what, mm-hmm. what makes people better. Well, I just read an interview with the actor Gary Oldman and apparently every time he gets cast, he immediately thinks I'm going to blow this. Uh, I'm going to be, and he's talking about this mank that he just did a marvelous performance. But he, he, he said, I looked at the cast and they're all so wonderful. And am I going to be the guy who screws this project up? And I'm thinking after all the stuff he's done, when do you start to feel like the pro from Dover? But you know what? Maybe that's good because, um, Something Otto said to me that involved the profanity. I'll clean it up a little. Uh, You know, he said, I'm going to tell you something now, and I want you to remember it. It won't mean anything at the moment, but just remember it. He said, kid, don't ever start believing your own BS. Because the day you start believing your own BS, that's the beginning of the end. And, uh, you know, I've seen guys who started to believe their own BS, that it was the beginning of the end. Uh, Maybe that lack of confidence somehow helps you rise to the occasion and give a better performance. I, it's, it's kind of a painful way to make it happen, but, but there it is. I, I, I skated over a question that you asked. I got off on a tangent. You, you asked what shows I'm best known for. Those would be Voltron, GI Joe, Transformers, and uh, Spider-Man the animated series that was in the mid nineties. Those are the ones that, that most of the fans remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with those, with those shows and how, how does voiceover work when it comes to getting a role? Is there, is there an audition process? Are they telling you, okay, you know, obviously with, with acting, you know, they say you want a middle-aged man who is, you know, has a country twang or something like that. How do they do with voiceover? Do they tell you they want, you know, a, a gruff gruff authoritative voice and then you have to try to create that voice or how does that work yeah it's uh, it's casting uh, and auditioning and i imagine it's not too different from what happens in the on-camera world it's just there's no camera there but you roll in and there's a drawing on the wall maybe a profile and a, f- a full-on face and then there's a couple paragraphs he's a gruff old salty sailor from uh, new england or he's this or he's that we kind of hear him as this sometimes maybe they'll they'll throw in a celebrity or two we we kind of would like somebody in the vein of uh you know uh, i don't know dustin hoffman or what not that they're looking for an impression of him but think about him as you do this Sometimes they say, we really don't know what we want this character to sound like. So be wonderful and surprise us, you know. So you what you do is you look at the picture and you read the character description. And hopefully you begin to hear a voice in your head. And uh, once you get in in front of the microphone, hopefully you're able to reproduce that voice. Uh, and, uh, if you're lucky, they like it and, uh, you get the job. So it is a 100% an auditioning process. I'm, I doubt that, you know, once in a while they'll cast you if they're looking for an incidental role or some incidental roles. I was one of the folks who was lucky enough to get a reputation to be able to show up and deliver three different voices. And, uh, in those days, they could ask you to do, well, they still can. They can you can do three voices in a, in a show without uh, triggering another payment. Hmm. And so if they had a bunch of incidental roles to fill, they, would, they might think of me and, yeah, he could do this, and they wouldn't bother to audition it. They'd just call my agent and say, send him in. But that would be a one-off. But for any kind of a <clears throat> recurring role, you're going to have to read for it. So what did you, what do you prefer? Do you prefer kind of a very uh, descriptive, I, I guess what they want, like a very descriptive thing of this is, we want it to kind of sound like this and this and this, and then you make it sound like that. Or do you like it better when they tell you, we don't really know what we want and then you can make it your own. It, you know, I don't really have a preference. Uh, 
you know, as long as they're open, sometimes you get in there and you do what they've asked you to do, but you've got an idea, you know, I, I'd love to hear him this way or that way. And so you say, listen, uh, I got an idea for this. Can I, can I lay down one more? If it's horrible, just burn it, you know? Oh, okay. No problem. You know, most people, yeah, sure. Whatever you want to do. And sometimes you do that zany voice that they didn't think they wanted. And suddenly they go, geez, that's better than what we had in mind. Yeah. Okay, good. You know, sometimes that'll happen. Mm-hmm. So really, I'll, I'll work with whatever they, as much or as little as they'll, they'll give me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot. It's, you, the thing about it is you've got to be able to sort of think on your feet and improvise. I didn't actually hear this. Somebody told me about it. They claim they heard an interview with James Earl Jones. And the interviewer said something like, well, you're doing a lot of voiceovers these days. I imagine that's an easy dollar. And he said, no, on the contrary, it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And the host said, really, why? Well, when you do a play or a film, you're given months to prepare and think about the character. And voiceovers, you walk in, they thrust a script into your hands and you have to do it immediately. And that's kind of true. I mean, um, I've done narrations just like those rip and read newscasts. I didn't know any more than than the audience what the next sentence was going to be because they didn't give me, you know, they didn't send it to me in advance. They just handed it to me and said, well, the booth is in there. Good luck. But, but yeah, you have to, um, well, if you get in a voiceover session, you realize most of the people you're working with, uh, they're just brilliant improvisers. I've heard stuff in between takes. It's just hilarious. I, some of these sh- uh, shows, it's like going to a great party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just no alcohol is served and periodically they interrupt you and make you work. But I mean, I've, I, I've, I've just, I've had some of the most wonderful experiences at, at, at animation sessions when the right combination of people come together and start doing shtick in between takes. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So something I always like to ask definitely of, of people that I interview that are, are well accomplished, like, like you are, what is, maybe the one thing that you are most proud of. And sometimes that, that kind of surprises me. It's not what I think people are going to say. Mm. Well, obviously the biggest job I ever had was when I was one of the announcers on the uh, 2003 uh, Academy Awards. That was probably 40 million people in the country plus the rest of the world or the English speaking world. Uh, so I'm proud of that, of course. Uh, I, you know, and I, I tend to be proud of the stuff that that the fans like and remember, and and that would be uh, probably a shipwreck in GI Joe and uh, Keith in Voltron and the Green Goblin in Spider Man, the animated series. I'm also very proud of having narrated uh, about twenty four, twenty five novas for public television. I always wanted to do that kind of thing, and I never. I mean, I used to watch Nova when I was a lowly San Diego disc jockey. And in those days, the idea that I would get to narrate even one of those seemed uh, like an impossibility. But I, I was lucky enough to make the connection and do, as I said, 20 plus uh, episodes of Nova. So I'm, I'm quite proud of that. Yeah. No, that's that's really cool. And you 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 mentioned in, in that answer about the Emmy Awards. I know that's how your book begins and then we kind of go backwards tell us a little bit how did how did the emmy awards come about how did you get that role and and uh, and a little bit about that experience well we're talking academy awards oh I academy also awards i apologize academy yes. awards i also did the primetime emmy awards a year later but gotcha. uh yeah <clears throat> well again you know like about 99 percent of voiceovers i read for it uh, they held, they said, would you like to come in and read for the Academy Awards? And I, th- I thought there's not a hope in hell. I'll get this job, but I guess I'll come in. And uh, Then to my amazement, uh, they said, you made uh, the finals, uh, come back. And at that point, I read for uh, the man who directed that year's Academy Awards, and he's directed uh, many other years, uh, an an amazing character named Lou Horvitz. And he kind of put the auditioners through their paces. And he said something to me that 
I didn't make any sense at the time, but once I got into the thing, I realized that he was right. <clears throat> he happened to remember that I, he had heard me on radio when I was a disc jockey. And he said, oh, you've got a live radio background. Good, that'll help you because uh, you're used to being on live. And later when I thought about it, I realized a lot of people in voiceovers never are on live. You know, their world is, oh, I'll breeze into the studio and hopefully nail this on about take eight. Well, when you're live, there's just a, a series of take ones and uh, you either do it right or you screw it up. There's no, no retakes. And I would imagine somebody who's never been on live, uh, that's kind of daunting. But I had spent 20 years where you key the mic and it's sink or swim, you know, live, 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 live. So that helped. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it was uh, probably one of the most frightening experiences of my life. The, the final five minutes until we went on the air, it was like waiting to be executed. Because you just, you're, you're there and you realize this is going worldwide and is an a theater filled with the cream of Hollywood. And I'm going to come on and mispronounce Barbara Streisand's name, you know, or something <laughs> dumb. And uh, please, God, don't let me do that. And fortunately, uh, I worked with a wonderful woman named Randy Thomas. There were two announcers that year, and she was very helpful. She'd done it before. And, uh, and we had a wonderful production assistant uh, who who was very, very helpful. And we managed to get through that sucker without any mistakes, none, hmm. none from the announcing department. Thank you very much. And uh, it's one of the, probably one of the most uh, memorable nights of my life, I must say. That's really cool. And that's, that's something I think with, when it comes to the announcers of, of those type of, of things, you, you don't even necessarily realize really exactly the job that they're doing until they mess it up. So I think that's yeah. a, that's a, a big thing. So that's, that's really cool for sure. So I know with, with your, with your book, um, you know, I don't want you to give away $2 and 50 cents of it, but you got a lot of really cool stories in it, you know, doing high pitch columnist, narrating for discovery, sitcom work, if you would, then have to be one of those, but just give us a, a one of your, a brief story that, that you really think it kind of is a, a highlight of, of the book. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, of course, the chapter on the Academy Awards, mm -hmm. I take you through that whole experience. I also devote an entire chapter to the one and only time that I had an on-camera experience uh, in which I played the green uh, newsman in... That's uh, funny. I just flashed on the fact that I, I almost said the green goblin, and then I realized, interesting, I was the green goblin and the green newsman in a movie called Dick Tracy, which was directed by Warren Beatty. And so I got to drive on the lot. Well, I got to go down to Western costume when it was still in Hollywood and get fitted for my green suit and my green fedora. And then show up and I actually had a little dressing room with my name on it, written in Sharpie, but still it was my name. <laughs> you, you don't normally get a dressing room uh, when you're in voiceovers. No limousines, no dressing rooms. It's uh, just part of the business. And just to have the experience of uh, sitting there under the lights uh, and, and meeting and being directed by Warren Beatty. And um, I'm only visible for about two seconds in the movie, but still it's, uh, it, it's a, a day I will never forget. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then there was, uh, I'm, there was a show, do you remember a show called Empty Nest? Is that with a uh, spinoff of the Golden Girls? He, uh, I think so. It was a spinoff of something. And uh, so they, they booked me. I was going to, I just did a paragraph. I was a British uh, narrator for a wildlife show that uh, one of the characters turns the television on and this fellow narrates for about a paragraph and then they go on with their sitcom. For some reason, they wanted me to read with the full cast. So, okay, the table rehearsal. So I put on a nice little sport coat and <laughs> I showed up. 
And nobody introduced me or said who I was or why I was there. I'm just sitting at the table rehearsal and all these actors are looking at me. It's like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> you know? And I wanted to, you know, say, it's okay. I'm, I'm nobody to worry about. But I couldn't. And uh, they obviously thought I was probably some network suit who was going to come in and give them a hard time. So I, they, I watched them as, as the table rehearsal progressed. They're all sneaking looks at me like, is he, is he liking this? Is he not like? <laughs> and I appear about two thirds of the way into the show. Well, anyway, they get to my line and the character says, well, let me turn on the television. And the leopard leaps on the little rhino and uh, and they realize, oh, he's just a schmuck voiceover guy. Oh, <laughs> and they're all smiling and laughing. And it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> That's good. That's I, I good. thought I thought that was a, a kind of a cute story. And it, it's in the book. No, I, I like that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, you know, you, you talked about, you know, in the, the beginning, some of your your mentors and auto. <laughs> Miller, um, what, what, just just briefly give us a little bit of, I guess, advice, your, your one-minute mentoring for people who are interested in getting into voice acting and radio and things like that. Yeah, boy, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough road to hoe these days um, for a number of reasons. Radio, uh, we could go off into a whole rabbit hole here but basically the telecommunications act of 1996 destroyed the business it's now owned by these massive corporations and i don't know how you function under those conditions in my day you had actual owners who wanted to be in the radio business and uh, now it's just basically faceless corporate stuff and i don't know how folks deal with it these days to be honest with you voiceovers it's a complete 180 from when I got in. When I got in, there was a relative, no, hardly anybody knew the business even existed. There were a relative handful of people doing it, and they were the old pros, and uh, the buyers used them over and over and over again, and they really had no reason to go with any new people. So it was tough to break in. It's tough to break in now because there's now thousands and thousands of people in the business. As I mentioned in my book, when I started out, uh, one of the, a guy who uh, did casting for voiceovers opined there were maybe 600 people in L.A. doing voiceover work. I don't know if there were even that many at that point. I spoke to a woman, this has been a couple of years now, who runs a casting service, and she told me in her computer she has what she calls the A-list. These are the top, top, top people. And I said, dare I ask how many people are in the A-list? And she said, it's about 30,000 now. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that gives you a, a, an idea of the odds. But in, uh, what I would say is if you think, well, I, it might be fun to do voiceovers and make a lot of money, uh, maybe you shouldn't try. But if there is something deep in your soul that says, I have to do this, I have to be part of the next Simpsons or whatever it is, I am just, I have a calling, then I would encourage you to follow it and keep in mind what I call the three P's, which are persistence, patience, and most important, practice. Hmm. A lot of younger people, and I don't blame them, they see Zuckerberg become a multi-billionaire before he's 30. They figure, I can just make the right connection. And connections are important. Luck is important. But if you haven't done your homework, if you haven't prepared for when that luck comes along, it's tragic because you, it doesn't help you. you you're, it's a waste. I quote uh, the late Robert Evans in his book, The Kid Stays in the Picture, he says, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. And so the one thing you can control in, in your career is preparation. They can't stop you from whipping out a little tape recorder and practicing whatever it is, narrations, commercials. If it's animation, maybe tape an episode of your favorite show, pick a character, write down all their lines, and then say, what if they called you in and said, we don't like what the actor is doing with this character. We want to change it. What do you got? What kind of voice could you come up with? 
because that's the kind of thing that they don't do that very often. But you're going to be confronted with a drawing and a, and a two paragraph description and, and you've got to come up with something. So start developing those chops. So, as I said, uh, patience and persistence without being obnoxious and practice, practice, practice. Like the old joke of the guy who walks up to the woman in New York and says, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? She says, practice, darling, practice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's good advice for for sure. So tell us just a little bit about what what are you up to these days? I know that you you've got your book. but, but what else you got going? I know we were we were greeted by a hungry cat earlier, so I know you at least uh, got a cat to feed. So so how how are you yeah. how are you buying the fancy feast? Well, I'm uh, luckily in a position where that's not a big problem these days. Uh, I still work, uh, unfortunately, uh, because people are so concerned about their intellectual property being stolen, and some talent has done incredibly idiotic things post posting scripts on uh, social media and stuff mm-hmm. like that so they make us sign these non-disclosure agreements mm-hmm. and i probably have violated one by saying even that much but uh, oh, you know yeah. I, I continue to do uh, games and uh, animation and uh, i am am the announcer on a game show called press your luck mm. Just waiting to see if it's going to come back uh, under current conditions, uh, and that's. But I can't really talk about any other specific stuff. Oh no, no! I just wondered, like, exactly yeah. if you're still working in certain voiceover. Yeah. No, I'm definitely not trying to get you to go uh, pass an NDA or anything like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So how how can we find your your book? Um, you know, you you uh i know that you you wrote it and then how can we how can we find it should someone be listening and and say you know this is something i want to hear more about i want to hear a little bit more about uh, neil ross yes well i have a website that i've created uh for the book and it's cleverly called neilbook.com n e i l b o o k.com the book is called Vocal Recall, A Life in Radio and Voiceovers. If you go to the website there, you will find links that will take you to either the uh, print or the Kindle version uh, or an audio version. A lot of people ask if it's on Audible, and I'm happy to say yes, it is, because I know a lot of people have memberships and they get uh, X number of books a month. And uh, if you'd like to hear my, I'm by the way, it's narrated by the the uh, the finest voice talent i could afford me and uh, cuz i was i was free and i must say my I, this probably will be the last book i will ever uh, narrate that's hard work my hat goes off to people that do that kind of thing i i got so frustrated i almost quit twice and fired myself three times but somehow i got through it but i don't know that i'd ever want to do that again but yes the audio the audio version is available on audible so it's www.neilbook.com and you're looking for vocal recall a life in radio and voiceovers by neil ross End end of commercial I like it. That would be funny though. If you had someone else narrate your book on voiceover, I would, (laughs) I would like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you talked earlier about being, you know, critical of yourself. Did you, when you were reading your own book, were you ever thinking, ah, why did I write that? Um, I mostly thought, why did I write so much? (laughs) (laughs) I I must say in my own defense in, in, in word, it's a, a little over 300 pages, but somehow well, I was talked into using larger type. The person who was advising me says, only old people will read this and their eyes are bad. So we got to go with a bigger font. Okay. You know, I, I don't know from publishing. Uh, yeah. Hopefully it's not just, well, it, so it's how, how many pages is it here? I got to look. Yeah, it's, it's up close to 600 pages, but it, it's only because of the big type kids. You can get through it. Yeah. And well, even I, if you hate the book, it makes a nifty doorstop. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I don't think I qualify as old people quite yet. And I enjoyed it. So I, I think that, that a lot of people will. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. I appreciate it. That's good to hear. Yeah. That's good to hear. For sure. So 
we, we heard about the book. Um, is that the best way, I guess, you know, I always ask people, how, how can, how can we connect with you? You know, everyone, I, I don't know what social media you have, and maybe you don't, but I always want to give people the opportunity to, I guess, plug their, their waste for, for the audience yeah. to connect. Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. I don't post very often, but you can find me there. Okay. And, um, that's about it. I'm kind of a Luddite. I don't well, do Twitter. Right. Cause I see what happens to some people, you know, who get on there with an ill-advised tweet and uh, suddenly have no career. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, I, I sometimes say carrying a phone around with a Twitter app on it is like carrying a hand grenade in your pocket. You know, that pithy thing you thought was so clever at two in the morning turns out to be a career destroyer by 10 o'clock the next day. <laughs> So, but yeah, I'll tell you, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I hope people do check out the book. Oh, thank you, Jackson. That's really kind of you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you have a great day. Okay. All right. And I'm not going to leave in a huff. (laughs) I like it. And that was my interview with Neil Ross. Hope you enjoyed that. I really appreciate his time. I hope you got a lot from it. Uh, I had no idea anything about voiceover work you know the the background behind it you know the the overall talent it takes now you know obviously with with any entertainment industry profession it does take a lot of talent a lot of practice a lot of work but just exactly the skill behind it was something that you know i learned a lot about from from neil so it was just a a pleasure to speak with them I appreciate his time. I do ask you to go check out his book if it's something you're interested in. I absolutely did uh, read it myself, and it was it was extremely engaging, and it was something that I just I learned so much about you know entertainment and and voiceover and 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 a lot of really really cool stories. Uh, he in you know in this podcast we we heard some some funny stories, and there's a, a lot more there too. Uh, so if something you're interested, check it out. Thanks to Neil for being here. Uh, Thanks to you for being here. Hope to see you next time and take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.